What's up, fam? This is Jay from Push Black. And as you know, over here, we're passionate about building black power and taking control of our liberation. One of the ways to build power together is through massive, unprecedented voter turnout. Every person in our community matters. That means you. You matter. And your vote matters. Tuesday, November 8th is election day. Put that in your phone. Make a plan for when you're going to go vote and help three people in your life make their plans. Hold each other accountable. Make it happen. Visit pushblackvotes.com for more information and the pledge to vote in 2022. Peace. Voting is powerful. The black vote is powerful. The dominant society has always known this, all right? They've gone to brutal lengths to suppress our voices, and they're still trying to use their power to steal ours. I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. As restrictive voting laws continue to rise state by state, one population is coming up and challenging racist lawmakers in a different way. Young black voters. They're carving their own paths to voting rights and the black liberation. With midterms around the corner, this is a great time to sit down with today's guest. Arika Bennett Scott is the executive director of Mississippi Votes, a youth-centered organization led by young people who are invested in electoral justice and the progression of Mississippi. In a state notorious for violent voter suppression that continues today, Mississippi Votes has registered tens of thousands of voters, young and older, and they won't be stopping anytime soon. Before we get into the episode, let's explore the dangerous lies you need to know as a black voter. There has never been a time when the right to vote has been a right at all. For hundreds of years, white supremacy has used nefarious tactics to disenfranchise our people. Whether through grandfather clauses or literacy tests, poll taxes or gerrymandering, the United States has a long history of weaponizing the law to suppress our voting power. Equally as dangerous as these so-called laws are the lies that uphold them. Like a game of telephone, these lies have generationally spread nationwide. It's imperative we pay close attention to discern fact from fiction. So here are five dangerous lies that we must dismantle to collectively move forward. Lie number one. Black people don't vote. Never believe this one. Black people do vote. Despite sneaky efforts to stop us, we're among the most stable voting blocks in the United States. This myth is rooted in white supremacist stereotypes from the Reconstruction era. Lie number two. Formerly incarcerated people can't vote. 
formerly incarcerated people can vote in most states. Not that the government has made it easy. States like Florida, for example, have used modern day poll taxes that require people to pay all fines and fees owed to the state before voting. Just because someone has been incarcerated doesn't mean they should lose their right to vote. Lie number three. Everyone has equal voting opportunities. Although it's against the law for states to deny the right to vote based on race, they find sneaky ways to disenfranchise our people. Many states have voting restrictions like voter ID laws and purges, which disproportionately target us. Lie number four. Only presidential elections matter. The president has a lot of power, but your local and midterm elections might have larger day-to-day -day effects on your life. The path to liberation will be a community effort. Electing your local officials is a great way to carve the path to black independence. Lie number five. Your vote doesn't count. If voting didn't change anything, Racists wouldn't be trying so hard to suppress our votes. Tons of elections are won by just a handful of votes, sometimes just one vote. Never believe these lies, especially the lie that we have no power. If that were the case, our disenfranchisement wouldn't be institutionalized. So, Arika, what does Black liberation look like to you? For me, because I come from this very Black queer feminist background, it just makes sense that I believe that Black liberation starts with us being, like just being, and being free to just be. There are a lot of places um, and a lot of spaces in the world, especially in the Deep South where um, young people, black people, but particularly black women and girls, queer and trans folks cannot just be. And so I think that black liberation means that we all get to just be um, in whatever, whatever realm of freedom that brings us to. It's wild to think that uh, it's as simple, like the destination could be as simple as that for mm -hmm. some folks, just being. Can you describe how your work contributes to getting us closer to that vision of Black liberation that you've shared? Yeah, I have an opportunity, the best opportunity to work with young people every day. Um, 
And one of the folks that I used to work with used to describe what we get to do as eavesdropping on what the next generation is up to. And I don't take that trust lightly at all. But because young people, young black folks, people of color, particularly when they're from the deep south, often don't have spaces and places where they can go feel safe, be seen, heard, and think through things, struggle through things without um, fear of retaliation or whatever, embarrassment or just asking the questions and toying with these different ideas, specifically democracy for us. And so because we allow young people to envision and create while also participating in what, what's already available to us, but because we're giving them the tools to imagine and to kind of do a little bit of experimentation about what they're imagining, I think that frees up black young black people for sure because sometimes schools aren't the place that give us the space to imagine when it comes to our history, when it comes to our world, and um, what's possible. How did you get involved in this type of work with the youth? Um, I was a young person myself uh, on a college campus. I went to Jackson State University. Shout out to my alma mater. And as a freshman, I registered to vote on campus, and it was 2011, and it was a high-stakes election year. As a matter of fact, there were a couple ballot initiatives. One of them was voter ID, and the other was personhood. Learning more about personhood really got me involved. I was walking to class one morning, and there were a lot of anti-abortion folks on campus with posters and signs, and I had no clue what they were talking about. But as I walked closer to the student center, I learned that it was a ballot initiative, and I did some Googling. <laughs> and this particular initiative was seeking to take away women's bodily autonomy, stripping them of access to emergency contraception and abortion care. And I didn't really, I didn't really like that. As somebody who was, again, like 18, 19, figuring out who they were sexually, wanting to choose and also didn't want people to like force motherhood or pregnancy on me. I, I just didn't understand why this was on the ballot. And so um, started organizing my peers around it. I didn't have the language, obviously, that I was organizing, but I talked to all my friends. I was like, girl, they trying to take birth control. We need that. And did that kind of work. And fast forward, did some other student organizing um, had the privilege to do that on a college campus and become politicized and learn all of these different things. And if you know anything about JSU, it's in the middle of all of this history. There's Lynch Street that has the Council of Federated Organizations, the COFO Center, um, the NAACP, and the Stringer Lodge is there. And so all of this history you're sitting in the middle of, and it's like, how can you not become immersed in um, all that's happening? How can you not be part of a social justice movement at JSU? And then as I was graduating, I realized that if I didn't train folks to do some of the things that my peers and I were doing. Like we started a black feminist collective. We raised our kind of hell about the zero tolerance policy and LGBTQ rights on campus and um, advocated for, um, you know, folks who were victims of sexual assault to get the, the, the proper treatment from campus support that they needed. 
And we decided that we needed to train the freshmen and the sophomores to do this kind of work until things changed because we had to move on. And so that just became like part of my my theory, training young people because you're not going to always be the person on the ground moving and doing things like transferring information is important. And so I did some youth organizing on some campaigns. I worked for a local nonprofit doing some organizing with them. I worked for other orgs trying to develop theories around how we engage young people around the political process and was getting ready to leave Mississippi and found the opportunity at Mississippi Votes and thought about it essentially as a blank canvas, as an opportunity to invest in young black folks and to give them some version of an opportunity to become a part of a political home, to have a political home rather, because I'd had those opportunities, I'd made those opportunities, but a lot of us without the traditional educational experience of going to a college and becoming politicized, we don't have that. So what happens to the young people who are not at JSU Millsaps or Haven or any other of the 17 colleges in Mississippi? I know Jackson is pretty unique uh, in the South in terms of just the number of black folks in that capital city. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious as to, you know, how prior to college, you know, were you being, how were you being politicized in other ways as you were coming up as a young person in Jackson? My grandparents were entrepreneurs in Tylertown, South Mississippi. My grandfather had a farm, a garden, funeral home, and barbershop, and they were also educators. And so people were, we the the house was kind of community, a community recreation center, sort of, because like folks were always at the house getting food for free. Folks were always hanging out and getting advice from my grandmother. Folks were always in and out of the businesses that they owned. And so I, I grew up knowing community was important. Yeah, I grew up going back and forth to NAACP meetings and uh, American Legion meetings. But if I'm being honest, I don't know if any of that clicked for me until I got to college because I was very aware of, of what was happening around me. And I loved to read and make up things in my head about the world around me. So I kind of lived in this bubble. I, I did pageants and I was in a bubble. I did school and pageants and then college happened and I was like, so I'm also a fourth generation Jacksonian, right? Like most of the folks in my family who went to college went to Jackson State University or Jackson State College. I got to campus (laughs) and my world just kind of shattered a little bit because there were so many cases of sexual assault and I was friends with some folks who, you know, were victims of such a thing and didn't understand for the life of me why the university wasn't responding in a way that I thought was appropriate or held the dignity of the folks who had been hurt in that way. And so it just kind of put a lot of things into perspective. And so like all of this happens the summer before I'm actually a freshman. And then I go to class maybe the first second day of school and I see all of this stuff about personhood and then I see all of this stuff about an election and registering to vote and so everything literally happens for me at Jackson State. Do you find similarities today when you're organizing 
the youth based on how you were politicized and how you found your political voice? Do you approach it expecting similarities or are there more nuances that you're on the lookout for when you're trying to get folks involved? Young people are so different like now. So sometimes I see an Arika who is like super green and wanting to learn, but also hasn't experienced life. So like it's kind of, how do I fit in all of this? But there's so much information, right? My niece is 16 and, you know, you would think that a 16-year-old that a is not concerned with abortion access or reproductive care or knows even what Medicaid is. But she's always asking me, like, why they won't just expand Medicaid in Mississippi? I'm like, girl, how do you even, what are you reading, right? <laughs> but, yeah, and I, I think for me that puts a lot in into how my organizers and I, like, approach the field. Like, we don't. We don't just go, hey, are you registered to vote? We like have conversations with people and try to get to know people, move people from being spectators to like actually learning about the process, participating in it and imagining something different. I think they're all um, have their own experience with what's happening in the world around them and are very critical of what's happening around them, even if they don't have the language that we have as organizers to talk about their conditions. I'm curious, uh, are there any specific lenses that you see the young people seeing the world through? A lot of the stuff that we were like stumbling on when we created the Black Feminist Collectives at JSU, um, we did those things because we didn't have the proper application. Like we didn't see a space and we didn't see it being applied to how people were organizing or moving people in Mississippi. Today, some of like, and we've had this conversation organizationally because some of the Black Feminist Collective work has kind of spilled over into the Mississippi Votes Arena, like our buckets of work. We have a fellowship called One Girl, One Vote, and we kind of adopt um, the similar model that I'm speaking about from the um, Black Feminist Collective, but all of this is kind of applied for them, right? Like they don't they don't think about, young folks now are not settling for like this issue or that issue. All of it is, all of it has to be guaranteed, right? And I, and I love that about them. And the politic that I'm hearing the most is around um, what the Black Youth Project 100 coined a few years ago as the Black Queer Feminist theory um, that includes abolition, an abolition framework that includes all of um, folks' needs being met with health care, um, that includes the sex worker, trans folks, queer and gender nonconforming people, like all of that stuff, Cl climate justice and um, folks who are incarcerated coming back into society in a way that benefits them as human beings um, and thinking of a way to address capitalism. So like all of all of their, I've heard it all at this point and all of the ways that they're viewing the world for me, I can't unsee anymore because I think we've, we've been used to bargaining. Like if we can get a little bit of that, then maybe we can scratch the surface here. And young people are like, we don't have to settle. 
Let me show you how it works. You center black, queer, and trans folks, black women and girls, and I guarantee you will all get free. And this is nothing new. The Kambahi River Collective told us this years ago. And young people are like, yeah, did y'all not read that? <laughs> you know, I'm curious how that shows up in actions, right? How does theory then become action for the young people that you're engaging with? couple of different ways. And now I'll start with this, um, this one scenario. So, and I've said this so many times in the last couple of weeks, I didn't realize how much this had grounded me and the organization, but 2020 was hell for everybody, obviously, right? We all had to figure out how we were going to do life with our partners, how we were going to do life with our parents, everybody. But we also had to learn how we were going to live outside of the the very interpersonal relationships that we have. Like, how are we going to be in the world? There was a moment in 2020 where young people across the country were talking about defund the police. They were talking about, we're tired of seeing Black men gunned down in the streets with George Floyd's murder being the last straw. And for young people in Mississippi, yes, that was crucial. And there were so many things that were happening that folks were not paying attention to across the country. Something similar happened in Jackson. Something similar happened in the Delta. And young people were like, okay, what's up? And we got a phone call in the middle of a staff retreat that was virtual because of the pandemic. And it was just like, look, you remember y'all promised us that you all would be our political home. We want to do this, this, and this and you're going to show us, like the demand on us to show and resource this idea that was beyond a protest, but more of a demand to the city of Jackson and to the state of Mississippi that here are these laws that impact us. Here's how we're going to engage this election cycle. Here's what we don't have available. Here's what you're going to do, right? And I thought that that shift was beautiful for for us to live out the promise that we had committed to. And it was also one of the one of the ways that really kind of shook us all as organizers in Mississippi Votes. And so living out some of those theories as practice, for me, the first concrete example that I have that was with my team and like we felt aligned in that had been us being like, okay, we're a political, that's a theory. Like, what does that even look like? What does that sound like? What does that feel like? Two, one of my friends often says, what is protest without power? And so like, yeah, we can go to the streets, but like the decision's being made at the Capitol. (laughs) So to have young people look to us for the next step made us go deeper into like the execution of all of this. So like, what does it mean to have... 10, 12, 15 young people talking to the Black Caucus and 10, 12, 15 other young people talking to the Senate to move some stuff around legislatively so that we can have a safe election in 2020. What does that mean for the ballot initiatives that were passed that inevitably removed the Jim Crow era provisions that gave us somewhat of an electoral college? What does that mean for medical marijuana and the removal of the Confederate emblem from my state flag? Yes, it's symbolic, but also young people made that happen. Had that been conversations for years? Absolutely. And the moment was ripe for it and young people pushed the needle because what I also 
want to have reflected on is that if they had not stood their ground in that way and like moved their theories into practice in the ways that we had been training them, we would have been stuck with the Stennis flag. And the Stennis flag is just as bad as the Confederate flag, if you ask some folks, right? So like that to me put a lot of my work into perspective because I am a, an idealist. I do dream a lot about what is possible. But that moment was like, yep, we can do some things and young people are gonna be the drivers of how we do it all the time. To your last point about being a dreamer and idealist, I can relate to that, especially when it comes to imagining what's possible in the world and specifically as it relates to our community. I'm curious as to how you've seen the effectiveness of of that, right? of the idea of we're going to attack everything and mm-hmm. dream big, which is, you know, that's what you do and that's reasonable. But... I'm curious about the effectiveness as it relates to focus and, and concentration mm-hmm. towards towards goals. Yeah. My mama used to say, and I used to be like, what? Why would I do that? But, like, how do you eat an elephant? <laughs> <laughs> One bite at a time. And so, like, you think about the elephant, right? Like, it's all of this, it's all of this big, beautiful, majestic type thing. And so are the dreams of young people. Yes. But... I think the way that we keep our eyes on the prizes, we always are grounded in, here's what's available to us right now. Here's how, here's what's available. Here are the options. Here are the routes we can go to change it. But for right now, how do we make this one thing work for us? And for us, all of the things that young people care about have been some, in some way, form, or fashion been connected to the ballot box. And so, like, if you think about you care about climate justice. There's somebody running on climate justice. There's a candidate running on that, right? Like, so how do you hold that candidate accountable? Because once you get folks elected, are they going to abandon the platform? Are they going to stand for what the people elected them to do? And the other question for me is always, like, how do you, especially for Black people in Mississippi or Black people in the Deep South generally, how do you, like, every election cycle, because we have one every year in Mississippi, how do you every election cycle tell a people that have otherwise been dismissed um, from this system, from this, this process, that this is the way that we have to continue to fight until we can build something new? How do you say that to somebody who's used to getting beat up, right? And for us, it's all about the incremental wins, too. It's all about, like, I see y'all looking at the top of the ticket. We might not have won the Senate race, but did you see what we did in that ballot initiative? Do you see the the power that you wield? And a lot of that is also, like, played out in, in um, we've had, like, people's caucuses and um, people's assemblies where people get to, and shout out to the People's Advocacy Institute, where people get to play around with, like, city budgets. And not just play around, but, like, make real recommendations and see the power that they wield on the city level. And I think that, to me, has been transformative on a community level. Because once you can change people's minds about who they are and how 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 powerful they are, a lot of stuff shifts. And we And, again, 2020 was... Folks weren't looking at Mississippi like that, but 2020 was literally that girl. That 2020 was that year where young people, black people were like, I bet, (laughs) electorally. And so I think that's how you keep people focused on like, this is the tool. This is how we can, this is how we can build. But also like, let's also 
reimagine what that looks like. We can do both at the same time. Derek Johnson likes mm-hmm. to say we can walk and chew bubble gum at the same time. We can dream and be realist at the same time. So being able to get some short-term wins to keep people sort of engaged in a process that is a longer-term struggle overall. Am I understanding that right? I think yes, and making sure that we not lying to people, right? Like, mm. this is a tool. <laughs> it isn't perfect. We're going to utilize this tool to the best of our ability. We're not trying to sell you a dream, but we are going to present ways that, like, democracy or other forms of um, governance have worked where people are at the center beyond America. Because America is not the dream girl for democracy. We know that. There is a path forward. Um, and we just got to dream of, dream it together and actualize it together. But we're not out here lying to people like if we knock on 250,000 doors and 100% of the electorate shows up, that life is just going to be abundantly different. We're not, we not crazy like that. Based on your experience with the youth in Mississippi, Mississippi being, um, or Jackson at least being a predominantly black city, overwhelming majority black, if I'm mm-hmm. remembering correctly. You know, how strong is that sense of black identity in the youth um, as it relates to taking collective community action um, as opposed to, you know, individual based uh, action based on individual interests? It's kind of innate, right? (laughs) Like, Mississippi is um, ground zero for the civil rights movement. A lot of that stuff is in our blood. A lot of it's in our soil. Like, you don't have to convince young people real bad to get involved with stuff because they see it, they live it, and in some ways they're connected to it through um, somebody that's still living in their family. And I think... um, I think because Jackson is so unapologetically black in the most beautiful way, uh, young people have this expression of um, art, like politics in their art and in in the way that they move and in the way that they socialize. It's just a part of the culture here. Um, And I would say that even about the state in its entirety, I think that black black people in Mississippi have... Yeah, black folks in Mississippi have always just been very clear and organized about community. How are you all responding to or engaging folks around this recent issue with the the water crisis that you all were experiencing? Yeah, the water crisis isn't new. Um, It's just been ignored because it's black. So um, Jackson has always had a horrible, um, not always, but from the time I was born, (laughs) has always had um, a really bad water system. And it's it's not a particular administration's fault, you know, and community has been organizing in a really beautiful way. So one of the things that Mississippi Votes has done in the past, um, yeah, since 2020 for sure, we started a mutual aid fund and a rapid response fund so that we could 
be more responsive to things that were happening in community outside of election day, right? Because people have real lives outside of the second Tuesday in November. Some of those funds were sent to help folks in the Mississippi Rapid Response Coalition to make sure that we were getting folks water and making sure that people could flush their toilets, making sure that folks had hot meals and places to take a shower and babies had what they needed. We donated quite a bit of money to make sure that 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 happened. And we have a volunteer base of about 200 and something activated folks in, in Jackson. And so those volunteers were sent to help the coalition rally around more resources. And we were able to use the national networks that we have organizationally to make sure that our partners on the ground and folks who were you know, intimately impacted on our team had what they needed too. So yeah, a lot of our work isn't I say all the time, like Mississippi Votes, the name is a decoy for so much more. That's real. And I'm, I'm glad to see that you all are doing that mix of the electoral work. But I think, as you mentioned, right, you're not lying to people. This is a tool, right? But you have these real on the ground responses to things that people are dealing with on a day to day on an ongoing basis as well. So it's great to see that. Yeah. I've done a bit of research on the like Republic of New Africa, New Africa, and then the, the folks who came down from Detroit. I believe the Malcolm X grassroots, right? Movement. Grassroots, right? For for sure. Um, and I know your current mayor is part of that lineage as well. And I, from what I understand, there is uh, there was the identification of a huge potential in some place like Mississippi. How are you looking at that in terms of long-term strategy for political power building amongst black people in the uh, in the community? When Marilyn Mumba ran in 2017, I was part of the youth civic engagement kind of folks that were corralling folks. So me and a friend of mine led that. And being part of that and prior to that, being part of some of the uh, conversations and movement orientation of the Malcolm X grassroots movement kind of has grounded me in the way that I think about politics, how I think about blackness, how I think about life generally. Um, And I'll say that there's a, there's a, if you think about Jackson, there's an ecosystem, right? Like we all love and hold each other dearly. Um, and so there's it's not a coincidence that Mayor Lumumba is the mayor of the city of Jackson. Um, yes, it's the blackest city in in our in in our state, but it's also um kind of like the 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 core of like our political heartbeat and like how folks are like dreaming about what can be new. The manifestation of that was the election of Baba Shokwe in in 2013 and, you know, obviously um, Antar's election in 2017. Saying all that to say, there is so much potential for what can happen across the state of Mississippi in the next 10 years. The ground is fertile and there is political infrastructure being built and has being been built for the last century or so since I, way before I began organizing for sure. But in the last eight or nine years, it's looked really promising. And so you see that with um, the election of folks who are 
going to um, the state legislature, like a house of representatives full of black folks, full of black folks mm-hmm. who love black folks. Probably one of the high, I think the last time I checked, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, the highest percentage uh, outside of maybe Georgia with black officials in this state legislature. We have 298 municipalities and an odd number of towns and villages. I think about 60 something of those municipalities are ran by black folks. So like the political power is there. Um, We just got to nurture it. And what we've been doing, like I said, the last eight or nine years is kind of cultivating new talent and moving folks from um, the field to the office. And, mm-hmm. and when I say the field, I mean the organizing aspect. And and I think we've also critiqued that a little bit too. Like, does that make sense to run folks who are like the organizers in into political office? Sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it does because those are the folks who are moving in the places that they're from. It just depends. But there's some research that we've been able to do around how much money is gonna take us to move from point A to point Z and how we're going to win down the ballot in 2024 and how we're going to figure out by 2030, Mississippi is going to have a a black statewide elected official for sure. With, I think since, what is this? This is 2022. Since 2018, Mississippi Votes has registered about 150,000 new voters, many of them being young people, um, young black folks, people of color, indigenous folks, um, folks who've been formerly incarcerated, folks who've gotten their rights back to vote. And so that is gonna make the electorate look so different. And one of the other pieces of that is, we're working on getting our ballot initiative process restored because some of the ways we believe that we can expand the electorate and expand some of those opportunities is to make sure that the ballot can be accessed by the 11% of Mississippians who have felony disenfranchising crimes. So like 230,000 people would be eligible, but they can't vote because of something that they got convicted of in 1996 or something. Mm-hmm. So like those type of systemic changes are, you know, really being pushed at the state legislative level. And we just, we got a long fight. We got a, there's a protracted struggle and we we know that. Appreciate you. Uh, Thank you for joining us on Black History Year. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Once again, that was Erika Bennett-Scott. She's the founder of Mississippi Votes. Find out more about her work at msvotes.org. That's msvotes.org. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most folks do five or 10 bucks a month, but really everything makes a difference. Thank you for supporting the work. Black History Year is a production of Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. 
Our team includes Tarek Alani, Brooke Brown, Tasha Taylor, and Lily Workner. Producing this episode, we have Sydney Smith and Lynn Webb for Push Black, and Ronald Young Jr., who also edits the show. Black History Year's executive producers are Michael L. Sesser for Lemon House and Julian Walker for Push Black. Peace.